0: This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by
1: Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM.
2: these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored
3: welcome everyone to trek fm's dedicated books and comic show i am just one of the hosts here my name is matthew rushing and i'm so glad that you have joined us whenever it is that you are joining us here on this illustrious podcast that's right i said illustrious and that's because i have two incredibly fine gentlemen who are joining me this evening as they always do bruce gibson and dan gunther
0: esquires how are you, gentlemen? Esquires, wow. <laughs> wow. Th- this gets better every week, these introductions. I'm just impressed, Matt.
3: Well, I-, I legitimately spend all day just thinking about how I'm going to introduce you guys and how it can be <laughs> more stupendous than what I've already done. It's getting tough to top myself. Well, that's so really- I'm not going to lie.
0: That- that's eating into your reading time. I hope you are able to read our novel for today's episode. Wait, we were, we were supposed to cover a novel? Yes, yes,
3: yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Dayton's going to be here. Okay, I'll, let me go back and finish it. But well, while I finish it, let's talk about uh, w- you know, we had a new comic that came out, New Visions number 12, and I did read that. I'm uh, kind of wondering what you guys thought about uh, the new Star Trek Beyond. I mean, the new Star Trek comic.
1: Yeah, there definitely are some interesting parallels here, aren't there? Uh, we've got a swarm of ships, uh, maybe not attacking the ship necessarily, but causing supernovas and being all swarmy. Um, This seemed really familiar to me. I I don't know. Obviously, Matthew, you noticed that. Uh, Bruce, what did you think of that kind of parallel there? I mean, it was the first thing I thought of when I saw this swarm coming
0: out of an exploding star, and I thought, oh my gosh, is this the same swarm we saw in Star Trek Beyond, just a reimagining in a different universe? And it's not, but I thought... Did they really pull this from the movie? Did the movie give them this idea? Or did it just is it just coincidence that maybe they started working on this before they knew what the movie was? I, I don't know. But every time Kirk says swarm, I just kept hearing him saying, I was not aware, Mr. Barris, that 12 Klingons constitute a swarm. <laughs> Excellent.
3: Well, I was just <laughs> hoping oh, that reference. they were going to use the Beastie Boys to defeat them. But then they didn't, and I was disappointed. So... Actually, I mean, this is, I think this is, you know, when it comes to the New Visions comics, they've been up and down. I think this is actually a pretty cool story. Uh, It's really well told, and for the most part, the artwork looks really good in it. Uh, And so I, I think this comic really does what it's supposed to do, which is to be basically almost like a lost episode of the original series. And for that... This one hits all the marks, you know, um, and, you know, whether or not you have some uh, similarities to Star Trek Beyond or not, that that's neither here nor there. I mean, a lot of Star Trek stories start to reference each other. So I thought that this was really fun and it just it's like being back in, in that universe as if, you know, this is a comic rendition of a of a episode that we just haven't seen. So I I think it gets high marks for that.
1: I definitely have to agree with that. It it felt uh, probably the most natural of the uh, New Visions comics we've read. It felt, like you said, probably the most like a lost episode of the original series, right down to the kind of ruminations at the end among the characters. You know, uh, what does this mean? What How does this kind of uh, reflect on our humanity and, and what we've done here kind of thing? It was a very original series feeling right up to the very end there.
0: Yeah, and it yeah everything you guys are saying there was nothing that really took me out of it there was i think all the the work that was done art wise was good the story felt real i love the interaction with the characters mccoy even you know saying to spock you damn fool why are you mind melding with that thing or i mean it's just everything it was all hitting its marks the only the only thing i would criticize is i thought they played a little too much in the how they would write checkoff and scotty they're accents was a little heavy in there. It was sometimes a little, I had to take a moment to really kind of translate what they're saying. Cause you know, a lot of times with Chekhov you replace, you know, W's with V's or whatever, but this was really taking it a little too far. I thought.
1: Yeah. That's it. That's always been kind of a constant struggle. I notice in the books and comics, some authors tend to write them just straight and you just put their accents on in your mind as you're reading and other authors really do walk you through and, and change the words and stuff. And sometimes it's a little jarring and yeah, it doesn't, it, it's it's a little difficult to read sometimes for sure. There's one word Chekhov had that I can't remember right now, but it was just ridiculous. I was like, no. <laughs>
3: well, I think this is a, a great place too for uh, the listeners to jump in, whether uh, it's on Twitter at Trek FM uh, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM or even on our Babel Conference, our listeners only discussion group. Uh, You know, jump in on one of those places. Uh, let us know what you think about this issue of, because I think that's a great question about, do you like when uh, the accent comes in so heavily? Or do you, would you rather just be able to read whatever it is like Scotty or Chekhov are saying and kind of have that voice playing in your head. I, I think that's a that's a great question. Uh, and, of course, you can also uh, email us at trek.fm slash contact. Just choose literary treks, and it'll come right to us. So, yeah, do that. I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on that because, uh, to, to me, it is a real fine line. Uh, and when it gets overly heavy and you're trying to have to read, read, like, a section that Chekhov says five times to understand what it is. It's, it's probably a little much, so... We do have some other great news, gentlemen, and that's that the Almighty Star Trek Lit Versed Reading Flowchart has been updated by uh, Trek BBS user Thrawn, and it's up there at the Trek Collective for everyone. And uh, I got to say, I love when these things come out. I, I swear, I just don't have I, I want to be able to print it out, you know, but I don't, I mean, I'd have to like actually go to a real printer to print out how big this thing is. It's
0: awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's an incredible resource. Uh, I've consulted this numerous times or directed a lot of people when they have questions about, where can I jump in? Like, there's so many novels now where, you know, they're part of some ongoing narrative arc and people want to know, oh, where, what books do I need to read to really get what's going on? And the fact that they're continually updating it every so often is really great, too. I mean, with a new Star Trek novel being published every month. There's so many new stories that get kind of stuck into this thing. And it's really great that we get regular updates. So kudos to those guys for continuing to add to this.
0: Yeah, I see. Crave by Thrawn in eight of five. So yeah, it's, um, I, this is the fifth edition and I mean, I've, I've always enjoyed these and I remember, I guess it was the first edition, maybe even the second I did print just on regular paper, but it's getting so big now that I'm actually am considering having this printed at a printer, like in poster size. I don't necessarily need it or use it to decide my reading order. Uh, but I just think it's so fun and fascinating to just look at it and it's, you can't just fit it all on the computer screen to go through it, but there's so much work in there and just to see how all these different novels can connect to each other. Yeah. I love this thing and I'm really glad that they keep
3: updating it and, uh, I do hope uh, somehow one day uh, they'll make a computer monitor big enough to hold it because it is awesome to behold. Uh, well, and and I I just I, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like twenty seventeen is a year that will long live in infamy. It's just going to be an incredible year, and you want to know why? Why? Because Titan and Aventine are coming to the Star Trek collection. Now, we don't really talk collecting here, but since this is about book ships, I could not be more excited. I cannot tell you how. I cannot wait to pre-order these puppies and have them on my shelf. I have been wanting both of these ships for so long. Oh, guys,
1: I'm I'm just pumped. Yeah, this is... This is really great news. Um, outside of the books, actually, if you could see the number of Star Trek starships I have lining my room right now, uh, I have most of them. And the fact that we're getting Titan and Aventine, I mean, this just crosses over into my love of Star Trek books in such a perfect way. Ah, man, to get non-canon ships that we know and love from the books in actual physical form that can you can hold in your hands wow, I am really looking forward to this, like nobody's business.
0: Yeah, I'm not a collector. I mean, I do buy things occasionally that interest me, and uh, I haven't bought any of these ships, but anytime there's something that's from the Trek literary universe that comes out as a product outside of the books, I usually tend to buy it. So I have my little Captain Mackenzie Calhoun action figure from years ago. I had to have that. And now in this case I I would want some of these ships. Now, Dan, I know like you said, you've got like a whole bunch of these. How much do these usually cost? What's the average price of a ship?
1: Uh the regular releases are around now, this is Canadian, twenty five dollars. Uh so I think a little bit less I, US. Yeah, I think it's like twenty.
3: Nineteen or 20? twenty. Yeah, I that think, sounds about so. right.
1: Like nineteen ninety nine kind of thing. Something like that. And it's yeah, it's like twenty four ninety nine, twenty five ninety nine Canadian. So, you know, and then the the special releases can be a little bit more expensive. I'm I'm not sure if they're doing these ones in uh the size of like a regular re- release or one of the large special ones. I I'm, I'm not sure how those are coming out.
3: I, you know, if either way, I would I can't wait. Uh I'd almost rather have them in the larger size just because Oh, here here. you know, these ships are <laughs> super special to me, I mean. And uh the you know, the John Jackson Miller told us that the Aventine is going to be a part of the Prey Trilogy. I'm I'm really hoping we get more of that ship and that crew because, um, well, I love Ezra Dax and I love the Aventine. And so uh, this just blew me away, the fact that um, we're getting both of them. I'm, I'm just so excited. So I'll definitely be pre-ordering these as soon as we can. And uh, I hope everybody will check these out and, and get them. So uh, before we dive into the feature just a few things uh one we already kind of told you all the places you can find us but of course you can find the podcasts everywhere we're on itunes uh itunes.com slash trek fm that's really the best place to to find all of the podcasts here at trek fm and we're a feature provider there on itunes and uh, heck while you're there we'd love to have a review and a star rating from you guys it really helps the show grow so uh, make sure you do that but uh you know if you're not on iTunes and you're not uh, and you're not an Apple user of course you can find us on Stitcher TuneIn or like i uh, are even on YouTube these days you can just stream us on YouTube SoundCloud all sorts of places we're just really everywhere you can be, so just check us out, and uh, we really do appreciate you listening on any format, and uh, I don't know, guys, what do you say we just uh, jump into the feature and uh, hang out with Dayton? I can't think of a better
1: way to spend my Here time. Here we go. woohoo!
3: I, I, guys, I can't even, I, I just can't, I don't even have the words uh, anymore for just what, what? how much fun it is when we have an author on. And if anybody was here on the other side of the page, they would have been dying laughing along with us because it's just it's just a joy to have these women and men on the show to talk about their books. And we're excited because we're wrapping up the Legacy Series tonight with uh, Purgatory's Key. And uh, Dayton Ward uh, is here with us. Unfortunately, Kevin Dilmore did have... Something that just came up. He he had to beam away. He he couldn't let it go. So, um, but we have the other guy. uh, Dayton (laughs) Ward. Am I saying that Ward right? Uh, Dayton. Is it Woolworth?
2: I don't know.
0: I thought it was Montgomery (laughs) Ward.
2: There you go.
3: That's
0: (laughs) Dayton. How's it going, man?
2: Um, You know, you guys keep inviting me, and I keep calling your bluff. So, you know, hi.
3: (laughs) Dang (laughs) it. We are again. Oh man Maybe you're just
2: putting it out there as a courtesy and hoping that I'll say oh, no.
3: No, no, no. I mean it I every time we're here, it's it's always incredible to me to think, you know, uh you were here from the beginning and, and um almost five years now. It's it's just insane that it's been that when you long. You say it
2: like that, it sounds really bad.
3: It so. does sound really bad, but it has been an incredible journey. Um and it's led us, I mean, to you guys getting to celebrate the 50th anniversary uh, of Star Trek, which I think uh, is something I just kind of wanted to start there, uh, celebrating the 50th. And I wanted to ask you with doing this series here and, and getting to write with your buddy, Kevin, what were some of the favorite things that you got to do here to celebrate the 50th? And And kind of on top of that, was there anything that was just, I don't know, you personally always wanted to do that you and Kevin finally got to put out there while celebrating, you know, Star Trek's big, Five zero.
2: Well, I mean, um, just getting to participate in the celebration in some way was, uh, you know, an achievement unlocked. Um, it's a Cha-ching. big deal. I mean, I'm a I'm a fan since you know diapers. So uh, for and for me, that's a lot of years. I'm I'm almost as old as the show is. So. Um, I've been a fan my whole life and we got to do a short story for the 40th anniversary. And I, I can't believe I said that out loud that we've been doing this that long. Wow. That's um, awesome. So, I mean, we were, but we were, you know, and then they gave us the opportunity to spearhead pockets celebration of the 50th. And so I got to work with Kevin, which is always fun. And I got to work with Dave Mack and Greg Cox, which, you know, we've worked with Dave before, obviously we, you know, we, we are old hands at working together uh, with the Vanguard series and, uh, and seekers and, uh, but it was our first time getting to collaborate with Greg. And we're all huge fans of the original show in particular. I mean, we're big Star Trek fans, but we love the original show. So anything that can that can celebrate the original series, we're, we were up for. Um, CBS had expressed a desire that we do something. We, we up our game a little bit for the 50th anniversary and asked us to come up with a storyline, uh, you know, either for a trilogy or, or more, four or five books. They didn't really know. They just said, come up with something big. And so the, the four of us went to work brainstorming. We started brainstorming via email and then we met at Shirley a couple, was it almost two years ago now we started talking about this and started plotting, you know, and we started, we wanted to come up with a, the, the quintessential style TOS five-year mission story, you know, and find a way to rope in something that speaks to the history of the show and the mythology of the show. So that's where the, the, the idea of bringing in the other captains came in and, them handing off something, you know, from captain to captain uh, came about and uh, everybody got a little piece of that pie to play with. It was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a lot of pressure because it's the 50th. You want to do it right.
4: Uh,
2: but it was a lot of fun.
3: That is pretty – I mean, it's just pretty special to be able to be a part of that uh, legacy. And, you know, I guess pun intended. Um, but the opportunity to, to really – Dive in and and enjoy exploring these characters. Uh, you know, after fifty years, I think I think it's just pretty impressive that Star Trek still lives on in the way it does fifty years later. I mean, there are a lot of things that just kind of die out. I mean, nobody's writing Lost in Space novels anymore. You know, things like that. But there's something specific about Star Trek that captured the imagination for people to want to keep buying books about it and those characters about it. And I don't know, I, I guess getting a little bit nostalgic, since we're here at the end of the Legacy series, what do you think it is that just has transcended 50 years of time and, and space?
2: I think that the series still speaks to people. It, you know, The episodes have something to say, and the original series tackled a lot of topics in the guise of science fiction that are still relevant, unfortunately, in some cases today. Um, we still deal with social inequality. We deal with, you know, economic inequality. We deal with uh, race relations. We do, you know uh, the industrial com- the military industrial complex. We deal with all mm-hmm. of that stuff. We were still we were talking about those topics fifty years ago. And here we are fifty years later, and they're still relevant. So, I think Star Trek still has something to say and still finds a way to, bring that message to people who are, you know, just now coming to it. I mean, so we got a lot of, I think we got an infusion with the newer movies and they're going back and looking at whatever it is that they missed out on the first time around. So we're starting to, I don't know how much of that is carrying over, but there is some of that. Uh, Cause I've, I've been able to deal with, or, you know, interact with fans who are fans because of the newer films. And then they've gone back to the catalog and looked at all that stuff they missed and realized, Hey, this is not corny. Like I thought it was. There's, there's more here than meets the eye. I think that still works for Star Trek because it's, you know, it's still basically a very positive message about the future that we're going to we're going to grow up and we're going to do great things. We just have to get, you know, get over ourselves and, and, and mature a little bit before we can get there.
0: So this is the 50th anniversary and you you write a three book series between the the four of you. So how do you there's kind of a fine line there because to keep it feeling like the original series, like the original TV series. That isn't, those shows did not transcend a three book series. So, how do you make something feel big yet small enough that it feels like the Star Trek series?
2: That is always the challenge when you write a Star Trek novel, particularly for something like the original series. Um, You don't want to become unrecognizable. You definitely want to evoke the flavor of the show, but you want to be able to do things that you that you can only do in, 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 a, in a book or a comic book or some other kind of expanded universe material that you could never do on the show for whatever reason, whether it's budget or time or you know availability or technology or whatever. I mean, that's that's one of the things that books have always had over film is that we can, you know it doesn't cost us any more money to, to throw an armada of alien ships out there because it's just a few more sentences in the book. Um, but at the same time, you want the story to feel like something that you could have watched
4: mm-hmm.
2: on the show. It's it's definitely a, a a tight wire balancing act uh, to do that because you definitely don't want to stray too far afield.
0: That was the sense when I was reading these books because I thought these could go bigger, but you don't want to go too big because it then wouldn't feel like the series.
2: Right. I mean, we we, we obviously got to go a little bit bigger, but um, you don't want to you don't want to move so f- particularly with again particularly with the original show, you don't want to move too far afield. You you still want it to be recognizable. I mean, I'm not saying that if somebody kicked a boulder, it would be styrofoam, but (laughs) it's it's that, we're trying to evoke that little vibe there. Um, I would like to think that some of these could be work that some of these books that we write could work as, uh, episodes of the show or maybe films, you know, feature films, but, uh, uh, definitely wanted to I definitely in my case I personally always strive to evoke the flavor of the show as much as possible
3: well and that's something that's really interesting too because as you're talking about that that interweaving and making it feel like T.U.S., you know one of the things that in, just in general Star Trek has done is you kind of have this kind of monolithic culture syndrome, where, you know, Ferengi are greedy, capitalists, and Klingons are bloodthirsty warriors, and, oh, you know, and one of the, the things that I really thought was interesting about this book was the way in which, you know, we're getting a little bit more multifaceted look of, of the Klingons, the Jator, the Sylidar, uh, you know, kind of multifaceted, you know, there's there's different aspects to each of these cultures, and so... Uh, Kind of wondered if there was just that concerted effort to be able to show the differences in these cultures so that it feels, you know, in a lot, a lot of ways more real.
2: Well, I mean, it's funny you bring up the Klingons um, because that actually was a point of discussion at one at at one uh, at one point during the. Editing process. Our copy editor would have notes for us in the manuscript. Do Klingons have scientists? Are there Klingon scientists? Is that real, <laughs> is that a real thing? I'm like, well, and to me, I'm thinking, of course they do. Uh, who, you know, who, who does the stuff that's that's required to support the military machine? You still have to have people who build ships and. And understand medicine and, and understand science. You still have to have these facets. Uh, they can't of, of all be society. Klingon meatheads. I mean, even yeah, exactly. They can't all be grunts you know, <laughs> on the front line. You have to have the logistics and the support. And yeah, and there are and there would have to be other Klingons that that do non-warrior things. Um, and I, in fact, I revisited that same topic because um, not to stray away from their legacies books, but I, you know, I recently did a, another one of those travel guides, and this time we're talking about the Klingon Empire, and that was a big note from the copy editor who was not familiar with Star Trek. She, all she knew was what everybody knows, you know, the basic entry-level type information. So I got all kinds of questions about: Are there Klingon scientists? Are there Klingon this, that, and the other? I'm like, there has to be. <laughs> you can't. They can't all be soldiers. But so yeah, it's uh that was that was an interesting note to to have to discuss with the copy editor. It's like uh, yeah, there are Klingon scientists and engineers and non other types of non military people, or even other types of military people that don't don't necessarily focus on you know combat.
4: Mm, yeah, just like
2: you would in a real military. I mean, there's you know the, even even the, the modern day military has has members who do not or who are not in the combat arms field. They are in some sort of support logistics field. So yeah, I mean that's. You're right, though. Star Trek does have a tendency, particularly in the filmed episodes, to to portray a culture as being very monolithic and very, you know, they're all the same. And you only meet with half a dozen of them, but they represent the entire civilization. So, yeah, we definitely tried to break away from that.
1: Well, going back to something you said earlier about, you know, some of these things that unfortunately are still part of the discussion, I feel like that's a big one. Like a lot of people see cultures that are not their own as being very monolithic. Like, you know, all people from a certain part of the world are terrorists or all people from, you know, someplace are just warmongers.
2: All people who follow a certain religion are this way or that way or not the other way. And yeah, I mean I don't know that we consciously set out to bust that down, but I mean obviously that's a nice byproduct of, of what we tried to do. Um is that yeah, not don't you know, don't judge everybody by a few. Uh that'd be that's actually you'd think that would be a Star Trek tenet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, don't judge the act. Don't judge the whole by the actions of a few. It'd be a nice idea.
1: Absolutely.
3: And on top of that, I mean, I think that's great because you know you have the character of Gork on here who's working with Sarek, and he is the, I would say, almost the prototypical Klingon that will transition us from TOS to TNG. And uh, I, I I love that he's in this book, and and we're seeing that more. Um, that softer side of Kirk, you know, obviously before his son has been murdered by Klingons and him hoping for a better future. And I, just, I love how Kirk at this point in his life, he can see that transition happening uh, because of what he's seeing in, in these different types of Klingons. And I, I just I thought that was something that was really cool. And like Dan said, it, it, it's it still speaks to our world today and, and what we hope it could be like.
2: I would like to think that uh, you know, with the organian encounter still kind of fresh. Uh, I mean, you know, in the in the in the continuity of the timeline, it hasn't been that long. It's only it's been less than a year since they encountered the organians. And the peace talks that they're having in book two are an outgrowth of that encounter. so you' you'd like to think that Kirk and other people who have dealt with Klingons only in a in a combative way to this point uh, can see you know a, a hopeful future down the road. It's like, we're, we're working toward that to what the Organians predicted would happen, you know, that we would become friends over the course of, of many years. Uh, and of course that gets realized by the time of next gen. And then even star Trek six, when a was introduced, planted those seeds. It's like, okay, this is a turning point in our relationship. And uh, it's, it's fun to kind of tie into those things because we, as the reader know where it's going. Even if the characters don't, and so we have a space to play in where we can kind of have fun with that idea. It did bring up a problem though during the book of the writing, the writing of the book though, because at one point in the draft that we turned in, we had a scene toward the end um, on the planet where Kirk and Gorkon interact, <laughs> and one of us at some point had an epiphany and went, "Wait a minute, they didn't—they were meeting for the first time in Star Trek Six, right?" And so we had to go back and look at it, and we're looking at the scene, we're going. Uh, it doesn't seem to me like they know each other, you know, they know each other by reputation, but they've never met. That's how we had to, we had to, so we had to go back and retool that scene.
0: I'm glad you guys did that because throughout the book, I kept thinking, I please, please hope they don't meet. Yeah. Are they going to meet? Cause they shouldn't. But then you caught it at the end where Kirk's like, yeah, it'd be nice to meet. <laughs> and then somebody
2: asked me, how come you didn't have nurse chapel and number one meet? And I'm like, well, you know, that, that's a funny joke. Um, and it would be cute for a moment, but given the overall tone of the story in our book, it's like, it felt inappropriate to try to shoehorn in a crazy fan wank meeting mm, between yeah. these two characters. Um, so we, 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 it came up and it was quickly discarded as an idea. Like, no, we're not going to do that. Um, just wouldn't feel right. It'd be like trying to tack on a funny post-credit scene to the end of one of the planet of the apes movies <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> after they all end on a down note here's a here's a comedy routine or you know, nick fury asks cornelius to join the avengers or something <laughs>
0: <laughs> that would be good <laughs> but then yet again you killed Gorkon, and we know he doesn't really die so why was that decision made exactly
2: we, I mean we that's the part of that you know and that's that's one of the hazards of writing a Italian book for a property that you know where the these characters are not going to die in this book you know they're not going to die you know they're going to be they're going to be alive by the end of the book because that's just what happens when you write a book like this so it's not about the destination it's about the journey
0: was that your way of hinting in the fact that these people re- really might not be injured in this other realm and they might not be dying because we know Gorkhan really doesn't die was that supposed to be a hint you
2: know we were trying to we were trying to drop hints as much as we were trying to drop hints as early as greg's book that this oh, okay. is not that all is not what it appears to be and and then and then dave carried the burden of of starting to reveal it to the reader that this is not what it appears to be um i know we're into spoiler territory now so uh for those of you who have not read the book sorry uh we will try to skirt spoilers but yeah, I mean, it was from the very beginning when, when the first encounters with what's going on uh, in the other realm, we started dropping these little hints that all is not as what it appears to be, and um, Dave took on the, the the task of introducing that idea to the to the reader for real, and then we got to, we by the time we pick up the baton, it's you know pretty much. A given that uh, things are existing in a space that are that we're not familiar with that's very different from how we live and how we exist. So it was a lot of fun. It was uh, definitely a lot, of, a lot of coordination, a lot of drinking, <laughs> at least on my end.
1: <laughs> well, that's something that I really loved about this is over the course of three books, you're really able to develop this kind of otherworldly space uh, in this alternate universe um and i i'm personally i'd love to hear more about the other dimension it's kind of this inception matrix and you know really one of the most unique things uh in a star trek book exploration wise that we've seen in quite a while i think and and kevin
2: gets all the kudos or most of the kudos for for the depiction of the other realm in our book um he did a lot of those scenes um he did the first draft on almost all of those scenes that take place in that realm um he wanted to take on that challenge and to i'll be honest i'm not a big I'm not big into metaphysical storylines or which is where we kind of went with this. So I was sort of like, I don't know if this is going to fly. I mean, but it was, it was funny. We didn't set out to do that. It just sort of evolved as the story started to take shape and we realized what we were going to do. And and I'm, and I'm kind of in the beginning, I pushed back against that. I'm like, I I don't, I don't like that in my Star Trek story. I prefer to have it more grounded, but once it started to take shape and Kevin started fleshing out some scenes, I'm like, okay, you sold me. Let's go see what happens. So yeah, it's kind of a Matrix Inception Nexus. I think the Nexus was definitely brought up as a point of comparison. We were trying to avoid that. Like, let's not make it the Nexus. Let's not make it a Mirror Universe. And in fact, we were we were very early on wondering if this was going to be some sort of tie-in, you know, a more overt tie-in to the Tantalus Field from the Mirror Mirror episode. And we started to go away from that. We said, you know, we wanted to do something different. So yeah, early on, I was like, eh, I don't know about this, but uh, Kevin sold me
1: one thing it kind of reminded me of and and you know don't don't take this as an insult it's a compliment because it's one of the few things about that episode i liked was the uh kind of weird feeling of the antimatter universe in the episode the alternative factor
2: yeah there was a, there was there was talk of that about as, as far as the way the two universes interact it's like okay how do how do they interact well they can only interact through this through this connection that has to be carefully controlled by the device and and that's how the the whole concept of that transfer field key and the transfer field generator came into being was that that is the focal point of, of how these two universes interact yeah there was a lot of email and a lot of phone conversations while we tried to work this out between the th- four of us uh and, and and still be able to let each of the writers tell a story that plays to their particular strengths and you know and this type of storytelling they're known for and dave of course had to rein in his you know his normal desire to like murder everybody
4: <laughs>
2: you know, we, we had to, we had, to we had to pull him back a little bit it's Like you can't you can't you can't lay waste to everything this time we have to leave some survivors um it was a it was a lot of fun uh putting it all together i think i mean i like to think it came out pretty well uh but i'm biased of course the true judgment is, is y'all's to make
0: so then you have the race of the jator is it the jator? Is, is it- yeah, okay. That's how
2: I pronounce it.
0: Yeah, excellent. I got it right the first time. So the Jator, they fear other beings like us because we're more we're intelligent life forms that they. I don't think they were expecting to discover, and Anadak was more accepting of that. So you have conflict between this one race of going into our dimension and and invading, or should we, or shouldn't we? But I'm also interested in like how more. I'd like to know a little bit more about the Jator kator and and how they existed in this weird realm and and were they physically there with their crew or were they somewhere else how did all that work
2: well the the way we envisioned it was that there were two universes ours and theirs and then the area where our characters find themselves is sort of the buffer between the two kind kind of like a foyer you know leading to the two universes it's 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 basically what happened when you when you go through the transition you're you're there's a there's a there's a, a, a an adaptation period or, or um, what's the word I want acclimation period that you have to go through before you can complete the transfer to the other universe because the laws of whatever are different um, that was our intention with the with the with the thought space that they find themselves in and the, and the manifestation of abilities and all these and all these crazy things that happen so in other words we don't really know to the extent that the other universe would be different because we only got to see those portions of it for very brief periods of time before the Jator came through to the buffer zone, so to speak. Um, but remember the whole, one of the things that we worked on was that they're not evil. They're not bad. They're just trying to survive. And so uh, the encountering people on the other side of the door is an unintended side effect, but to them, it's more of a consequence of, well, we're just trying to live guys. You know, it, it'd be like us, you know, clear-cutting a forest to build a housing development um, it's you know it's not really evil it's just you know we're not having any concern for what might already be there um, but they're not they're not acting out of malice um, that was one of the things we talked about at length was you know is this an invasion or is this just you know a misunderstood uh, they're just trying to get by and we're and and at some point we can help them maybe type story i mean that's more star trek in in nature as far as the story
3: I liked that ambiguity in the end, uh, you know, of just kind of what was going on and the fact that the question that was raised by Kirk and Spock and, and Bones at the end, like, what would we do if our, you know, civilization was completely on the brink of annihilation? How would we deal with that? And, and you know, I, I thought that um, I thought that that was really special because, yeah, it you know, there were a, a part of them, I, this group that that was kind of like you know, what we might call evil, right? Yeah, but, misguided. But, yeah, misguided. <laughs> oh, there you go. You know? But on the other side, you know, you you have these people that they really are. They're they're just trying to make sure that their civilization doesn't end. And I thought, you know. Uh, what was nice about that is how you can just see yourself in that, and it was it was just a a great way to not have it end up just being that thing where like, oh well, it's just another just a you know prototypical bad guy, which I know anytime you guys are writing a story, you're trying to avoid that big time.
2: Well, I mean, even if we have a bad guy, I mean a bad guy, and I'm using quotes, air quotes, you know, even if there's a bad guy in our story, I always try to, <laughs> I always want you to feel sorry for the guy at some right. point. Right. I want you to. I don't. I don't. I don't like mustache-twirling villains. I don't like simple. I don't like antagonists who are just evil to be evil, you know, or or world domination. Mm. You know, I I prefer there to be what they believe to be a purity of purpose. Um, It just may not align with what our heroes are after. Right. Um, But you know, I I love the fact when you can feel sympathetic toward the villain in a story, and because then you're kind of you're kind of caught. It's like, well, I I kind of I kind of want him to win. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. That's definitely hard, and I think it's more rewarding. And it's definitely, it's definitely a Star Trek mm-hmm. uh, story. I mean, it's, it definitely becomes a Star Trek story at that point. Right. Um, and that was one of the things we labored over in terms of how to portray the Jator and even the people who come at, like, misguided, evil, not evil, misguided. Even the misguided characters in the story. You know, we tried to to to, to kind of paint them in a sympathetic light, at least you know to some degree.
0: Well, it worked because I felt bad for the Jator that got stuck in our universe and separated from the rest of their kind. So I actually felt bad for them. I did,
2: too. I felt bad for them, too. Um, and, and plus, you know, it's not intentional. I mean, it's not like you always want to leave a little bit extra there at the ends. like, well, maybe we can come back and revisit this civilization or these characters at some point in a future story. I mean, I'm I'm not saying we're writing a sequel or anything, but it's like you always want to leave a little door you know, you always want to leave the gore cracked a little bit uh, in something like this, because you know, it, it's. I think the story could have gotten, it could have gone bigger. I mean, we could have, we could have explored the other universe in much more detail. Um, but uh, you know, trilogy, three books, you're already you're already asking the reader to make a commitment uh, at that point, and anything more than that, you might, you might risk uh, not being, not having it worth the payoff. Um, I think three you know, trilogy is a nice uh, tight number to keep something like this.
3: Yeah, no, I I think that definitely makes sense. And I think uh, another really interesting thing that I I liked about the story was just the the crew itself, and you know the interactions between the crew and the way that that you guys uh, really I think did a great job of of um, using all of them. You know, I mean, it wasn't just the, the main three, but, you know, throughout the entire series, we got a lot to do with Uhura. We, Chekhov gets a lot more, I mean, he Chekhov felt a lot more like uh, uh, the, the new timeline that we've got, you know, which I kind of loved because, you know, uh, it gives so much more life uh, to these characters. And, and I uh, talk about just kind of uh, getting the opportunity to truly make this a 50th anniversary by celebrating not just three characters, but all the characters.
2: Yeah that's that was definitely a conscious effort on our part. I mean and and for my own sake when I write the characters of Chekhov and Ahura and Sulu now okay because we're we're 6 or 7 years now since the mm-hmm. new movie started those portrayals of those characters definitely inform what I try to do with with those characters now, because Ahura in the new movies has been given so much more to do than she ever got yeah. on the original show. Even though there were hints in the original show that she was more capable. You know, she she did have a technical background, and she could repair equipment, and she could get underneath this console and get her hands dirty and do all those things. Um, you never really got to see a lot of that in the original right. show. And the movies are the new movies are much better in that regard of mm-hmm. bringing those minor characters or those supporting players to the front and giving them more things to do uh, that are more integral to the plot. And so, for the last several TOS books that I've written, those portrayals have definitely informed my writing of those characters. And in particular, for this story, we wanted to make sure everybody had something to do that was that was significant to moving the plot forward
4: mm-hmm.
2: um, and I always liked the relationship between Spock and Chekhov. I always thought that was an interesting mentor apprentice relationship that never really got explored during the show um, you know because when you see Chekhov on the bridge at the science station uh, doing things, I'm like, well, what else was going on down there? What else was going on when he wasn't on the bridge you know and and, and, and try to play with that relationship. So, yes, definitely Um, conscious decision to try to get everybody to play ball at least or, you know, get everybody to play with the ball at least once.
1: Yeah, I think those scenes came across really well. I loved, uh, you know, having worked as a teacher myself, just the little prompts and cues Spock was giving Chekhov. I really appreciated that. It felt really genuine. But that's what
2: you would expect to see in 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 a real setting like that. It's, you know, uh, uh, someone who's in charge of a department or in charge of a group of, in this case, you know, I know, I know Star- Starfleet's not the military, whatever. Um, but that's the sort of relationship you're supposed to have. If you're a yep. leader like that, you are a mentor, you're a teacher, you're always teaching your job to the next people in the chain of command so that they can take over when you move on, or whatever. Um, that's realistic. So to me, and that definitely got short shift, you know, short sheeted during the show. Um, and you don't even see that in the films, but in this in the books, we have space to do that. So definitely fun for me because it can't always be spaceship battles and 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 fights on the ground. You have to have you have to have those good character moments.
0: and you have to have love stories too.
2: got to have a love story once in a while, <laughs> sure. But I mean, it's we have the space to do that, and it's fun to kind of give added to me. you know you're not redefining the character. you're just kind of adding another slice uh, you know, to, to their, to their backstory. I mean, we can't, we obviously can't make any huge changes to the character, particularly if you're doing it during the five-year mission. Um, so you have to find ways to kind of wedge in a little bit of characterization or, or backstory that we haven't done before.
3: Well, that's one thing I did want to ask, you know, I, 50 years, you know, we 50 years, these characters have been around and, you know, writing in, this era you know it, it's it's got to be fun but also challenging because you know how do you give dimension to characters that are that age but like you just said you have to stay within the framework of the original series and so you, you can't do anything too crazy how uh is it almost a way of like tricking us into thinking we're getting something we're not, or like, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's so
2: much tricking. It's just, okay, let's approach this from, uh, you know, like for, I'll use the Spock and Chekhov example. You know, the, the only real visual evidence that we had of them working together is, you know, you see Chekhov at the science station
4: mm-hmm. or
2: Spock and Spock is in a briefing room or someplace else on the ship. And he calls up to the bridge and he tells Chekhov to go to a console and do something, you know? Um, so obviously there's a relationship there and, you know, in my opinion, or in my eyes, when I see a young officer like Chekhov, that guy is basically at the point in his career or woman, uh, they're learning, they're constantly learning on the job. I mean, they learned all their, the basic stuff at the Academy and whatever school they went to. Now they're really learning how it works for real. Um, and the only way they're going to do that is if the senior officers who've already been doing this for a while, teach them you know, the real way it works in the fleet, in the, in the, in the yeah. real, in the trenches. And so you don't get to see that because of the, the nature of the show. So, and again, it goes back to, we have the place, we have the space to do that. And, but how do we do it and maintain consistency with what we saw on the show? It's like, we obviously Chekhov did not become a science guru overnight and replace Spark, but you know, there's, there's plenty of room there for for a, an ongoing mentor relationship between him and Spark. So yeah, that's, it's not so much a trick. It's just looking at what's there and seeing what we have to work with and how far we can kind of not break anything, but just sort of stretch it a little bit. You know, it's like I can add one more knot to that, to that cord and and to try to, to try to make it seem fresh. It is hard. Uh, And then sometimes you'll get halfway through a scene that you're writing and you go, you know what? I just remembered the episode where this totally doesn't make sense. (laughs) (laughs) Go back and start all over again. Um, it, It can be hard. One of the things we did for this, though, I don't know if it came up in the uh, in the interviews you did with Gregor Day, but we we made a conscious decision to have these books stand apart from the rest of the novel continuity. Uh, we didn't go out of our way to overtly contradict anything, but we, you know, we the idea was that anybody who was a casual fan and just jumping on board for the 50th anniversary could grab these and not have to worry about reading all the other stuff. Kind of the way they did with Crucible back uh, right. during the 40th anniversary. That was the idea.
3: Well, and it's funny because I I'm trying to think like. And and guys, help me out, Dan and Bruce. Did, was there anything that jumped out at you that made you feel like it wasn't? Because I felt like, you know, for the most part, there wasn't anything where I was like, oh, that doesn't mesh with what they did in so-and-so book, you know, so.
2: I think there were a couple of minor references to stuff that you would know if you had read the other books. Like if you were reading, like, for example, uh, in our book, we referenced the Defiant.
4: Mm-hmm. And
2: okay. we referenced yeah. characters from the Defiant that we created for, Vanguard and Seekers, and st- or, or for the Vanguard series. Um, mm-hmm. So if you read the Vanguard books, then you know who those characters are. But if you haven't read the Vanguard books, they're just another name, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so when that was, I mean, we sprinkled those kinds of references in, but we didn't refer to, example, the Vanguard storyline, you know, we right. didn't make any right. overt references to that. So we definitely, right. definitely toned that. And we, we thought about it. We're like, because well, we, originally the idea was we were going to do this massive crossover with TOS and Vanguard and Seekers and engineers and whoever else we could find. Um, that was, that was an early idea that we batted around, uh, and decided not to do that because we wanted to be, we wanted it to be more accessible to uh, a casual or a new reader. Mm, Yeah.
1: I did enjoy the little name drop of the, uh, Corps of Engineers coming in and cleaning up yet another James Kirk mess. (laughs) (laughs) That was pretty good. (laughs) Pretty sure
2: their whole field manual was written with that in mind. It's like, okay, another Kirk mess. Here we go again. Um yeah,
3: isn't that just what they do all day? Like that's go why around- they were formed, you know. It was like <laughs> <yeah.
2: laughs> kind of like that Department of Temporal Investigations. They have, you know, section 1701. that's just Kirk's temporal violations. They have a whole office dedicated to dealing with that. Um <laughs>
1: The bottom of their dedication plaque says, "To boldly go where that jerk Kirk has gone before." <laughs> you
2: know what? If, if they don't, we need to call Eagle Moss and have that made.
3: That um, would be awesome. That would be awesome. Awesome. i put awesome. down the wall
2: right next to my Enterprise plaque.
3: Oh, I love it. <laughs>
2: To 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 was it to not to boldly go, but to more to inevitably go where, you know, Kirk has screwed up something before. You know, yeah, that's that's a great idea. Let's call Eagle Moss and get that going. Let's get a petition going for that.
0: Oh,
3: gosh, I love it. Perfect.
0: (laughs) Well, even though you didn't directly reference other novels, but were other novels an influence? Like when it comes to the character of Joanna McCoy, was any from her novels like The Crisis of Zintaris an influence on this book?
2: We did revisit some of those books to read to make sure our, that our portrayals could be consistent. I mean, that's actually one of my favorite uh, of the old older pocket novels is Crisis on Centaurus, um, and we even made you know when, when we decided we were going to use the planet Centaurus, we're like, well, okay, but here's a here's a novel set on that planet. Um, and I think if we were to really look at the chronology, this story takes place before that story. So we're good. <laughs> I think we're okay chronologically. Um, don't, but I I don't want to swear to that just yet. Um, I just remember I remember pulling it off the shelf when it when we were navigating towards Centaurus, as the planet where they were going to hold this peace conference. I remember uh, flipping through it, thinking, is there anything here that we need to be aware of? Because we definitely, like I said, even though we we intended this to be accessible to everybody. We didn't go out of our way to contradict anything, and, and and if we could avoid contradicting something, then we then we then we zagged in that direction. Like yeah. let's not let's not step on so and so's novel. Let's not step on this episode, or, you know, this comic book or something, uh, unless it was uh, you know Keith to Canada. Then we walked all over everything. Uh, no, 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 we did. We we did we did have a couple of conversations. We were like, well, there was a novel where that happened. You know, let's not do that. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons that Christopher Pike does not appear in this novel. Uh, directly is because greg had just come off writing uh child of two worlds Mm
4: -hmm.
2: which is a very pike era uh uh, it's very it's very much a pike era novel he didn't we didn't want to contradict that and we didn't want to do another follow-up to that so soon uh so that's why nurse or number one gets elevated to get to you know guest star status uh for this book uh we, we didn't want to overtly contradict that and we didn't want to just revisit another pike story but I remember the early conversations we had where one of the things that we were going to hinge the plot on was that the only way to get to information that Pike has is to have Spock mind meld with him to get, to get some piece of the puzzle, you know, that we needed. And then we decided not to even do that. Um, We just decided that uh, after, after his, turn in in Greg's other book that uh, number one could could fill in that stead.
3: Well, and that's speaking of Spock, it it was really interesting to see how you guys uh, built upon Enterprise with Amanda and Sarek. And I think for me, that was one of the things that I really liked about this book, especially as we had been uh, recently rewalking through the old uh, Enterprise uh, relaunch novels that were covering the Romulan wartime period. And they really use that connection between Trip and T'Pol. First time we'd really seen that. And I love how you guys kind of bring that idea that this happens for Vulcan couples and, You know, people who are um, in a relationship with a Vulcan uh, of this magnitude, and so I really liked seeing that. And and Amanda just jumped off the page. I feel like uh, her and McCoy would be like pinochle buddies. Uh, (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. Actually, she. One of the themes that we were talking about early on with the books was that the the overriding, the overall theme of the of the entire trilogy would there would be family. Uh, a family connection. And of course, that plays a big part in our book, uh, how Spock and Sarek are able to work together to solve the problem. Um, but we had to be conscious of the canon because in Unification, the Next Gen episode, Spock specifically tells Picard that he and Sarek had never melded. There is no ambiguity. And we're like, well, how do we get around this? And then one of us hit on the idea of her, his connection to Amanda. They would be linked telepathically and to some degree, so Spock could communicate with Sarek using Amanda as the conduit. That's how that came about. Because, yeah, we, we were like, how are we going to get around this? How are we going to In fact, it was even specifically outlined in the in the outline that we or in our synopsis to give to CBS that, you know, we're not contradicting canon. This is how we're going to do this. Because it, it came up. So, yeah. That, so that's one of the reasons why she plays such a large role, particularly in our story, um, is to facilitate that, uh, that turn of the plot with Spock and Sarek.
1: Well, I like that you specifically called that out in the book too. When they're, when they are communicating, Spock says, it's almost as though there's a wall in between them and I can't get through that. And it's marked CBS for some reason.
2: <laughs> and uh, how far can we walk up to that line and not cross it? Uh, Cause I mean, Spock's line and unification is absolutely point blank specific. This never happened. I'm like, okay, we, there's no, it's not like trip dying at the end of enterprise where there's some room to wiggle, you know, it's like, this was absolutely no room for, for, for maneuver. So we're like, but we can get around it. Hang on. Um, yeah, it's uh that's the other hazard of dealing with this kind of story. It's like, oh, there's always there's always something that you can't violate canon wise. But that's the challenge. You know, it's not a, it's not it's not a limitation. It's a challenge.
0: Well, you changed my perspective on Amanda and McCoy, and I don't think it was intentional. But I kind of felt like those two could hook up if Sarek wasn't in the picture. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I don't think it
2: would that. happen. You know, McCoy, McCoy's a gentleman, man. He wouldn't do that. <laughs> but I like the idea of them being pinochle buddies or bridge partners or, or, or you know, something. I, I can totally see that happening. I, I would like to see more Amanda. And I think, uh, I mean, there's been some hints that Amanda might factor into a discovery. I've heard rumors to that effect. I mean, you've seen the same website articles <laughs> I have. But they were they were hinting that she might show up at some point because of the timing of the story. I'm like, well, maybe maybe we'll get more about Amanda in that in that uh setting. We'll find out. I'm waiting to find out just like you guys are.
1: Awesome. Well, speaking of discovery, uh, something that kind of leapt off the page to me in the final pages of the novel, Kirk's kind of ruminating about, you know, the goal of of, of Star Trek, basically. And uh, he has a perfect summary of the theme of Star Trek, distilling it down to one word, and this just jumped off the page, discovery. Uh, I, s-
2: I swear, I swear, I swear <laughs> that was unintentional. I did not do that. I did, Because when I wrote that, they hadn't announced the name of the show yet. And then when, but it was, but it came up while we were doing the reviews. And I'm like, well, now how about that? You know, that's, that's a nice little bit of a serendipity do um but i swear on whatever you want to swear on i did not do that <laughs> deliberately it was a total lucky out for us
1: oh it's so perfect like like it almost if if you weren't aware of the timing of when it was written and stuff you would swear it was guerrilla marketing for the new series cuz that is perfect
2: <laughs> i'm happy to tell that story that way i'm i'm totally happy to edit the tape and make it that's that the official storyline but i swear I'd, i it was not intentional it was just a lucky happenstance they opted to call the show's discovery i'm like how about that somebody's reading my stuff so no um
3: oh you I, know it was just kirsten you know you i know, mean she was reading you know, just, she was reading the copy edit and she's like oh that dayton i'm, I'm just gonna... not that
2: good man i really am not <laughs> and and i mean i just got lucky i'm lucky not good i'm happy that it worked out the way i really it took me a probably the better part of a day to write that last page because i was i was aiming Aiming so that you could turn into the opening narration, and uh, and I and I literally edited and revised and added and subtracted so that I could get to the point where you could turn the page and see the opening narration. I don't know how many times I revised that that last page because it was like, okay, they could they could stick it on the end of this if I'm not careful, you know, because they're always monitoring our word count and page counts. I'm like, I got to get it to a point where they have to turn the page and see the the narration. I want it to be the last thing they read. And so I just spoiled the entire end of the book, didn't I? Um, so yeah, I was, but I mean, I wanted the, I wanted the, Kirk's thoughts to naturally bridge to that narration. And um, somehow I, I, I ended up with, you know, discovery is that key word. And then all of a sudden here, hey, here comes Brian Fuller calling his new show Discovery. I'm like, this is an awesome, awesome selling point. Thanks, Brian, for pimping my book that way. <laughs> um, no, it's, uh, it was pure luck, pure luck. I'll I'll never be that lucky again.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I did want to to kind of go back a little bit because something to me that I really liked about the series, and, and anybody who's listened to the show knows how much I love the character McCoy, and so anytime that there's a focus on him, I really, really like that. And I loved that this series dove into him as a parent and finding a way to repair that relationship with Joanna, which I, I, I will be completely honest that last scene between them had me choked up a little bit. Uh, And so uh, talk about just kind of um, getting an opportunity to dive into that side of McCoy that, you know, we just don't see very often, which is kind of disappointing because it's not like there's a lot in canon that you could really, you know, have to worry about.
2: Well, I mean, first, credit where it's due, those scenes were written by Kevin, uh, at least the first draft of them. Um, I may have gone in and polished them but that the 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 scenes with Joanna and McCoy and the scenes with Amanda and McCoy were all written first draft by Kevin so all of that stuff that you like about McCoy's character in that book that is totally on Kevin um all I did was go in and add a coat of wax or something um that was all his doing uh that was independent of our outline he totally came up with that as he was developing those scenes for those characters um and I had a, I had a lot of, I enjoyed reading them. I mean, I actually forgot I was working, you know, while I was reading some of those scenes. That's how good a job he did on them. And that speaks to Kevin's strengths. Kevin Kevin is definitely the stronger writer of the, of the two of us when it comes to those types of nice character moments, you know, that kind of give you a breather between the big action pieces or the bigger plot pieces. Um, he's definitely, that's his bread and butter. He can definitely make a, a scene sing in that way.
3: I I just that um, is
2: all I'm going to say that's nice about Kevin tonight that's
4: done. <laughs> my
3: and if he wants some more said he needs if to come more, on he's to show himself. pay up right? yeah that's I, right I, 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 well okay so we alluded to a little bit earlier but I know that um you've been very busy in the Star Trek world you've been writing a lot um first just wanted to ask you about uh the uh, hidden universe travel guide for Vulcan and the fact that you are jumping in and, and of course, writing the one for Kronos as well. Yeah, let us know um, some of the things that uh, you enjoyed so much about Vulcan that made you want to dive into a whole new planet.
2: Well, the reason I'm doing the Kronos book is because my editor asked me to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, there, were, there was talk about the Klingon book um, very early on, even while I was still writing the Vulcan book. Um, the Vulcan book came about because Apparently, Inside Editions, who's the publisher, uh, came to CBS with this idea of doing uh, not just Star Trek travel guides, but but travel in-universe in travel guides for some of the different licensed properties that they do books for. So, like, for example, there's another one coming out later this year that ties into Marvel's cinematic universe, as told from the point of view of characters from Guardians of the Galaxy. So, but it's all going to be under the same hidden universe umbrella brand. Uh, that you know goes across the top. So, uh, so there's going to be Star Trek and and Marvel Cinematic, and a couple of their other licensed properties may also get this treatment, and they'll all be offered under this Hidden Universe banner, the way you would just go to a, get a Frommer's guide for Japan or Thailand or wherever it is you go on vacation. So they came to CBS with this idea, and um the the the, the John Van Sitters at CBS recommended me for the job to write the Vulcan book. He said we want it to be kind of lighthearted. We don't not parody, but a little lighthearted, a little, not, not quite so serious, you know, maybe a little irreverent in places. Uh, and, and, for whatever reason, he decided that I was a good fit for that kind of a project because you know me, I'm totally serious all the time. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, I had never worked with inside editions or those folks before. So, uh, I got, I got to you know work with some new people and it was a tremendous amount of fun. It was a lot of work. But it was a lot of fun, um, fleshing out Vulcan in, in, in not only the in the ways you would expect, but also making some left turns and, and throwing some stuff at you that you might not expect. One of the things we talked about was that, you know, Vulcan being a founding member of the Federation for and now we're what, almost three hundred years after that event, you know, they, they it would be people would be migrating to that planet the same way people move from one country to another here. Right. So Why not have a cosmopolitan flavor to some of the larger cities like the capital city? You know, why wouldn't it be like New York City or Paris or Tokyo, where it's very cosmopolitan and very diverse, uh, you know, representing not just Vulcan, but, you know, numerous members of the Federation. So, of course, there has to be stuff that appeals to all those people who live there, plus tourists. So that was that was what drove the Vulcan book.
0: Like Ferengi. (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Well, I mean, you know, the you are going to go wherever they can make a buck. That's that's a given, right? So the idea, and then of course I threw in the in joke about well, Quarks is now a franchise, so we're going to have the Quarks bar. Uh, and now whether or not there's a Quarks bar on the Klingon homeworld remains to be seen. You'll have to read that book. But um, you know, I got to do stuff like that, and then you know, then they, then I got to I got to have some fun with the um, PSA type sidebar articles, like what to do if you find yourself in a Vulcan marriage ceremony, and. Uh, what to do if you find yourself the unwilling recipient of a Vulcan's catra, you know that kind of stuff. I mean, that was where the humor really comes I out. Hate it like, when
3: that happens. I
2: I get to play it straight, but it's funny, and so um, you know the the inherent insert, absurdity of the entire idea is what makes it funny. But yeah, definitely different than writing a novel. And um, it, it's I guess the closest comparison would be some sort of role playing book source, role playing game source book. You know, like a, back, you know, a book that provides background on a setting. Yeah. That's about the closest comparison. But even there, I was told, you know, don't make it dry. Don't make it, you know, just straight out facts and figures. Have some fun with the concept. So I was very, I was encouraged to 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 kind of let loose a little bit and have some fun.
1: Well, I have to say, um, having read it on a plane returning from shore leave, that was a pretty cool experience. <laughs> like, I... They actually had
2: to dial me back a little bit in a few places because, I mean, my editor and I have different senses of humor, you know, not bad or worse, just different. And uh, he even says, I don't know if this is going to play. I was like, well, okay. You know." I'm, I, I, my understanding was I was hired for the job because of my sense of humor. And I've spent the better part of 50 years developing that sense of humor. So it's hard to change now. You, know, you can't take the snark out of Dayton. It's pretty much embedded in his DNA at this point. But no, I mean, it was, it's good. And, as, and actually, it, was, it worked out very well because my editor was not as well-versed in Star Trek lore as, let's say, Margaret Clark at Pocket Books who is very versed in the lore. So it was nice to be challenged on something that I may have taken for granted. It's like, okay, I'm going to write this reference and everybody's going to get it. And he would be like, I don't get it. And so I, I had to rethink it and go, you know what? You're right. I'm, I'm, I'm playing too much inside baseball here. I need to, I need to, to broaden the descriptions in some of these references so that non nerds, <laughs> you know, regular people will understand it too. Because Definitely the book appeals as sort of a gift book, for the casual Trekkie, you know, or somebody's grandma who, you know, you know, their granddaughter or grandson is a Star Trek fan. So she's going to buy this for them for Christmas because, you know, it says Star Trek on the cover. So definitely, definitely have to have a broad based appeal for something like this.
0: I think this book annoyed my wife because She went out and she bought because we were going the summer to the UK and France and she bought the real travel guides and I wouldn't read them. (laughs) She kept saying, you should read these. And then one day I come home with the Vulcan travel guide and she's like, really? (laughs) Right. You're going to read that.
2: (laughs) It's funny because I I went, when I got the job, I went to the bookstore and I bought a couple of travel guides. Like I bought a Lonely Planet guide uh, and I bought a Frommer's guide just to get two different types of travel books. And they were both for places that I hope I get to go back and see or go see for the first time. So I mean, I so I called it a business expense, but I'm you know, really hoping that I get to go on vacation um, to see how they're put together. You know, it's like uh, realizing what they wanted. And I'm like, OK, we know about what do we know about Vulcan? They're logical. They like plumeek soup. They get, they get horny every seven years and they have pointed ears. That's pretty much the boiling down of what we know about Vulcan. Right. So <laughs> how, do I make, how do I turn that into a thirty five thousand word travel guide? including points of interest where you can go eat and stay and vacation and get photo ops and all the other things that you expect from a real travel guide. That was the challenge. Uh, and then of course, then, you know, and the later I worked in the night and this, of course, that's when the goofy references come out, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to have a little wordplay here. We're going to call the, we're going to call the bar in, in you know, where you go play karaoke, you know, she karaoke, that was a that was a vodka infused Bit of inspiration, I'm sure. Um, you get punchy after a while, but I mean, it just goes to the to the to the larger uh, effort of trying to make it accessible and fun and a little bit irreverent and written casually. So it's not written by Vulcans; it's written by you know the staff of a company who writes travel guides. Um, so you would expect these same people to travel to a, to a planet and do all the research required to write a book about it, uh, instead of it just being written. Because if it was written by Vulcans, let's let's be. Fair, it would probably be pretty dry and boring.
3: Well, and and if it was the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it would probably just say mostly logical. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> I don't know, and
2: I don't know if there's going to be another one after the Klingon Guide. Uh, I suppose the sales of this one and the Klingon Guide will will determine if there's a, another one, and I don't know what the next planet would be. Uh once you get past Vulcan and the Klingon homeworld and maybe Romulus, you know, it's like, okay. And even Romulus sounds like a tricky one to me because I'm like, I don't really know how much about Romulus we truly yeah.
3: know. I'd like a Bajoran travel guide. I think that would be pretty awesome.
2: I'm gunning for Risa personally, Ooh. but that's just me.
0: Um <laughs> That one me. might not be safe for work. So. That's true.
2: I mean, you know, <laughs> um, I don't know.
0: Then my wife will really get mad for me re- for reading that one. I know that. Um <laughs> But speaking of fun, I have a feeling you're writing something else that's fun a comic coming out that's sort of like a gold key comic in the waypoint series
4: oh yeah
2: we are we are having way too much fun with that Um, (laughs) before i segue to that though i do i do want to i do want to make one more comment about the travel guides one of the other things that makes these books in particular so much fun to write is uh, is the artwork that goes into them
3: oh Uh, yeah um, yeah in the Mm -hmm. vulcan
2: book in particular uh, livio ramondelli and peter markowski are the artists and they just did a phenomenal job with the art that they supplied for that book um i cannot say enough nice things about those two gentlemen and i'm
1: it really is gorgeous yeah i
2: do not know for sure if they will both be back for the klingon guy i have my fingers and my toes and everything else crossed hoping that they can that that they can come back and play again because they they did such a tremendous job on the first book um and and so that will segue into working with artists and 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 on this on this comic book that that bruce brings up we were invited by the editor at IDW, uh, Sarah Gatos, who's who oversees the Star Trek line. Among other things, uh, she wanted to do a special 50th anniversary miniseries project uh, where she could bring in outsiders, so you know, so to speak, people who are not the regular rotation of IDW's writers and artists to work on this uh, six-issue miniseries, two stories in each issue. And she reached out to us like back in January or February, I think it was. And asked us if we were interested in doing it. And I had never written a comic book before, so naturally I said yes. I can't wait to do this idea. So Kevin and I teamed up, and we. one of the things we – she asked us for two or three pitches, and the first thing I said was uh, I would really like to do a gold key homage. And I barely got the word homage out (laughs) before she said, I want to see that. Pitch me that idea. Um so we threw three or four ideas of what we thought would make a good gold key type Star Trek story and you know how those stories are you oh, yes. talked about the gold key comics right
4: Yes they're insane <laughs> right
2: they're totally insane but yet you love them they have a charm that you cannot deny and uh so we she picked the, the one that she liked of our pitches and 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 then put us to work back in the summer uh, in fact we turned in our manuscript right after the Vegas convention in early August um, and then it got approved. And then she told us that Gordon Purcell, who is a veteran artist and and including a lot of Star Trek during, like, for example, DC's run uh and Malibu Comics run of Deep Space Nine comics, he's he's definitely got a lot of Star Trek under his belt. So she told us that he was gonna be the artist. And so we were Kevin and I are both, you know, comic nerds. So we were excited by that to, to be able to work with somebody like Gordon and uh when we started talking about what the art would look like, you know, so we obviously we're going for the we're going for the gold key look, but you know we wanna do loving homage, not slavish recreation, you know it's definitely which definitely uh plays to Gordon's style um and I just yesterday saw the first colored page with it's been inked, and it's it's not even the final colors, it's just a preliminary like here's a color test basically. And oh my God, I feel like I'm eight years old again. These comics are hysterical. Uh, the colors are bold, and they're and they're 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 gaudy in a couple of places. And we're trying to recreate the look of the newsprint that was used for the pages in the old comic books. So there's awesome. you know they're not white; they're kind of off white. You know there's this, and there's some there's even an element of flaking in in the panels of the artwork to make it look like just a cheap newsprint that didn't print very well. And it's kind of coming off the, the ink is coming off the page a little bit, you know, in spots and splotches. There's, there's even that detail and we're just, we're laughing way too much and having way too much fun. It's insane. Cannot wait to see the finished product. I think I'm going to buy like 700 copies of this thing. Oh,
1: <laughs> like uh, that's too cool! That sounds really awesome.
2: They're going to be they're going to be birthday and Christmas presents for like the next ten years. To there everybody you go.
1: You, yeah, you um, just sign them and give them away. You're
3: like I'm exactly. famous. Exactly.
2: Just like here, here's my card. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we're I mean, everything is being recreated. Even the even the if you look at the old Gold Key comics and you open up just any page at random, they follow a very strict panel layout.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Six,
2: there's, you know, it's a six panel layout and they vary it sometimes with like a double panel across the top or the bottom or whatever, depending on the needs of the storyline. They don't have defined borders. You know, the, the color just ends at the end, uh, at, the, at the imaginary border where the gutter starts, you know, and it's like, and, and, the, and Gordon's totally recreated that style. And in fact, I saw the first panel of the Enterprise flying toward a planet with flames coming out the back of the nacelles. And I literally said, I want that tattooed on my thigh. <laughs> i mean i don't get tattoos but if i was going to get one that would be it <laughs> um, and uh, it's just insane i cannot wait for people who are hardcore star trek comic fans to see this thing. Mean, it's uh we even argued about how big spock's ear should be <laughs>
3: <laughs> and how you know? much he
2: should shout well i mean it would, everybody shouts by the way there are That's we all the exclamation <laughs> points there are none left um but we talked about, you know, like will Kirk's shirt be green, you know, green right. shirts and of course and the landing party beams down and they all have backpacks and holsters for their phasers and utility belts and what color will all that stuff be. And, you know, it's just the, the emails we've exchanged over this thing are ridiculous. Like, okay, we're, I mean, here's the style guide. We're going to do this, that, and the other, and the artist, the, the, the person who's doing the coloring on it is totally into silver age comic books. So he totally got what we wanted to do from the beginning. And, just, uh, I know I've been yammering about this for too long now, but it's it's one of the most fun things I've done yet, and that's saying something because I've got to do a lot of fun things.
3: What I love about it is that I felt so vindicated by the fact that we've been covering Gold Key comics on the show, and I was like, "See, mm-hmm. that's why we did it because we knew." No, we didn't. We just were having fun covering Gold well, Key I mean, comics. We, uh, I, I,
2: Ken and I were talking, and I said, "Hey, let's let's pitch a Gold Key." story and he's like you know what are you talking about i said no let's 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 totally do like a lost issue of the gold key comic um let's lean as far into that as we can get as we can get away with you know um recreating the, the style completely obviously is, is is a tall order because you just that's not how people do comics anymore, but right. I mean we the structure of the comic is the same. There's even an opening splash page that has nothing to do with the rest of the story, but it kind of indicates where the story's going. <laughs> I mean we we totally went bananas. There's a floating head in space that describes the plot, you know. Oh, awesome. <laughs> it's just every every cliche we could come up with that we could pull out of an issue and cram into 10 pages, we did.
1: Oh man, I can't wait for this. This sounds incredible.
2: <laughs> Ridiculous how excited I am about this. I'm almost 50 years old and I'm talking about a comic book like I'm eight, you know Um, but I have all the gold keys. I mean, I used to buy the gold, I I hate to date myself, but I used to buy issues of the gold key comic on spinner racks at the store. That's how far back I go. Um, so this for me is just tremendous fun. Can't wait to see it. Cannot wait to hold it in my hands. My, my, my grubby little paws.
3: Well, I know that not only that you've been working on a, uh, brand new book in the TNG era. Which, I mean, uh, can that guy, John Jackson Miller, stop messing with the Enterprise for you? Because, seriously. (laughs) uh, Yeah, make
2: sure when you have him on next time, (laughs) because I think he's probably next in the batting order, right? Uh, Uh, Yeah, we just had him on to
3: to preview Prey, and he'll be on in December to talk about the whole thing when it's done. Oh,
2: okay, cool. Um, It's funny you bring that up, because I have brought that up. (laughs) I'm like, hey! (laughs) um, uh, And this goes back a couple years now. Um, After the the fall miniseries at the end of the, of the, of that miniseries, you know, one of the things that I set up at the end of Peaceable Kingdoms was that the enterprise gets to go explore again. And I wrote it very ambiguously because I didn't know that I was going to be the writer that they picked to do the next book. You know, I wrote it, I left it very wide open for whoever would, would be able to take that job. And I ended up being the writer that, that Margaret picked to write the next next generation book. So I said, okay, I'm going to send it out into a previously unexplored area of space. Um, Eight weeks away at high warp, you know, and then all of a sudden, here's a new book by John uh, that requires the Enterprise to be back at Earth. You know, I'm like, okay, so I didn't think anything of it. And then I wrote Armageddon's Arrow and I started thinking about the follow up to Armageddon's Arrow. And while I'm writing the one that you're talking about, it's called Headlong Flight, I find out that John is coming back to write a trilogy of books that requires the the enterprise to be back <laughs> in, you know, in Federation space.
3: They backtrack like, a lot. I'm like, it's an eight week, <laughs> one way trip people. Um, you know, so,
2: and I, and I keep trying to set up things and it's like, Oh, and then, and again, apparently it happened, you know, yet again. So I'm like, okay, enough. You know, I, I I'm hoping I can get left alone for one more book. I mean, I mean all this in good fun, of course, it's just the way it goes, but um, the the book I'm actually working on two next generation books for next year. One is called headlong flight. And that is a follow. It's a follow-up to Armageddon's Arrow and John's Prey trilogy, I think. Wait a minute. Yeah. Okay. And then, then the one I'm writing. I'm, in fact, I'm I'm doing the review on it now for my editor. It's called Hearts. And, it's it's working title is called Hearts and Minds, and it's another next generation novel that takes place after Headlong Flight, but it also incorporates elements that you may remember from books that I've written before, uh, from History Shadow and Elusive Salvation. There's a tie to those books as well but this time involving the next gen crew that's coming later in 2017. I don't know the exact publication, but I want to say it's either summer or fall. Uh, I don't, I don't know what the calendar for 2017 looks like yet,
1: but before that will be John Jackson Miller's epic new story featuring Admiral Picard.
2: Sure. There's an epic four-part <laughs> John Jackson Miller story coming um, that will, that will totally derail what I'm trying to do. Actually, I did have to rewrite the end of hearts and minds to deal with some stuff that dave is introducing in his section 31 novel that's coming out about the same it'll come out, i think it comes out the month before mine and it did require a rethink on 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 hearts and minds to incorporate a very interesting plot development that it's all i'm going to say i don't want to steal any of dave's thunder Mm. um but yes it did it did cause me to go back hold the phone hold the phone hold the phone i have to think about this Um, because it does have ramifications that will that would that would in theory carry forward
1: the curse of a shared universe (laughs) it's a challenge it's not a curse it's not it's not it's not not, not, yeah it's a
2: challenge it's and and then sometimes the challenge requires alcohol but you know that's the way that goes (laughs) i knew the job was dangerous when i took it
0: (laughs) as long as it all fits into what was in the gold key comics i'm fine
2: yeah, as long as <laughs> as long as it doesn't violate the gold key canon, I'm happy. Yeah, um, yeah. The, that's that's the, my or, canon baseline, absolutely. Or the UK comics, even if you've never read any of those. Yeah. And those oh, yeah. are
1: yes. if, you, if you think
2: the gold keys are insane, where do you read the UK comics? Um, the strips from the UK. Have you, have you seen any of those yet? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Oh, my God. Those are completely off the hook. I totally want to write a story that ties into one of those. (laughs) I mean, that picture of the shuttlecraft getting grabbed by the Kraken or whatever that thing is with the tentacles. I'm like, I can write that follow up. I can totally do that
0: thing. Well, you mentioned Armageddon's Arrow, and I just want to say congratulations because you won a Scribe Award for that.
2: I did. thank you very much. Um, mm-hmm. I was as surprised as anybody. <laughs> um, I, I know that sounds coy and, and 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 false modest, but false modesty, but I mean, considering the people who were nominated in that category, I was willing to bet all the money in my pockets that um, one of the other nominees would get it, specifically Jonathan Mayberry, who is just a fantastic writer and a fantastic person, um, and you know just a hell of a storyteller. and i I'm thinking I'm going up against him. I have no chance, you know, it's, uh, so I was as surprised as anybody when they called that one out. I didn't, I did not, my check did not clear, so I don't know how they decided to pick me. <laughs> so, but thank you. I, I appreciate it. It was, it's nice because, uh, I, I've gotten a lot of nice comments about that book and I'm, I'm happy with the way it turned out.
3: For you, uh, anybody who wants to, where can they keep track of, uh, you know, what's going on with Dayton and, uh, you know, what you're writing next and all of that up-to-date stuff there on the interwebs?
2: Well, I'm, as always, you can find me at DaytonWard.com. That will give you the, the gateway to my social media platform, Twitter, Facebook, and blog, and all that good stuff. I think Instagram's on there now. Um, as far as what I'm working on now, I'm, you know, I'm, doing, I'm doing reviews for Headlong Flight, and uh, I'm, I'm reviewing the final pass pages for those uh, because the book is out in January. And I'm doing uh, editor's notes. I'm, in, I'm revising my manuscript for Hearts and Minds based on my editor's notes before it gets sent to CBS. I don't know what my next Star Trek novel project will be at this point. Um, uh, we're at a, we're at a point <laughs> – I'm actually finishing up the last book on my current contract, so we shall see. I mean I expect there will be something. I just don't know what it will be. And I've got uh, a couple of uh, other projects that are percolating uh, for other uh, publishers that I can't talk about just yet. But, uh, you know, they want to keep me working. So isn't it time uh, for that
3: Captain Proton novel then? Man, (laughs) I'm telling
2: you, I'm ready for that. I'm ready. I'd love to do that. I'd love to I'd love to take a crack at that. I feel like Um, that
3: should just be like, uh, you know, an anthology book where you get to write short stories and just come up with goofy ideas.
2: I'm I'm doing a couple of short stories for non Star Trek, but other licensed properties. Like I have a story in a Planet of the Apes anthology that's coming out in January and I'm going to do a Predator short story for uh, the same company. Um, there might be a couple of other licensed properties that I work for over the next six to nine months. It just depends. There may be some non-novel Star Trek work coming. Uh, I just haven't – I'm not at a point where I can say, yes, I'm working on that. No, I'm not doing anything related to Discovery. <laughs> so, at least not that I know of. Maybe later. I'll keep my fingers crossed You know, uh, for Dave. Uh, since he's, you know, he's 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 going to be the lead out writer on this one, the the lead off hitter. So we're all rooting for Dave, but I don't know. But we'll find out. Hopefully, I'll be talking to my editors here in the coming weeks to figure out what's next for me as far as Star Trek at Pocket.
3: Well, we can't wait to have you back to talk about things in January, and we're very excited to to hear what you've got coming up. Uh, we will cross our fingers that John Jackson Miller doesn't screw up any more of your wink wink. We love you, John.
2: Yeah, I I know. John is a is a great guy. Um my 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 one of the topics that keeps coming up is, you know, are we gonna get to the point in the timeline where Romulus blows up? And mm, I'm like, Yeah. Um unfortunately the forces at work there are they transcend, you know, uh what we can do as novel writers. Um I'm hoping that we can uh, find some way to deal with that big elephant in the room because, you know, the fans wanna see us do something, obviously. Um I don't know. I don't know how that will work. I don't know if it's in the cards or if we're just. I really don't know. Um, but these eight-week detours back and forth between the, you know, the Alpha Quadrant and the and where the, <laughs> the Enterprise is supposed to be do not help the calendar.
4: Um, that is uh, true. I,
2: and I have brought that up. I'm like, you guys keep doing this to me. You keep taking four months off the calendar every time we do this. Um, you know, I'm running out of days here. We're going to start slowing down time or something. I don't know what we're going to do or, or do a new 52 kind of thing where we reboot everything. <laughs> so, I don't, I
3: don't. Well, Dayton, thanks so much for joining us. It's, it's been a blast, uh, talking about the, the wrap up for the 50th anniversary series legacies. And, uh, we'll look forward, like I said, to, to having you back in, in January to be able to kick off the year. Oh man,
2: just, we, we are, it will be January, won't
3: it? is <sighs> Isn't that nuts?
2: It seems like the older I get, the faster the months fly by. Okay. Stop that.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well,
2: thanks
0: so much. It's always fun talking
2: to you guys.
1: Oh, it's always our pleasure for sure.
0: <laughs> so that was really cool because that's my first time talking to Dayton and it was a great way
1: to wrap up that three book series. It's kind of, I mean, Dayton's such, he he's almost a regular on this show, which is really, really great. I mean, you know, way back before I was even on the show, he was the first guest of Literary Treks, and uh he's really become a staple of the show, and it's always a pleasure to have him on.
3: Yeah, I love having him back, you know. I think of Dayton as uh, a good friend now because we've known each other for so long and gotten the great opportunity to talk back and forth, and, you know, hes uh, I've just enjoyed his work, you know. Dayton is a fun writer, Um, you know, uh, and I love uh, when his, his wonderful, as we talked about in the show, his sense of humor gets to come out, uh, you know, especially with uh, his in History Shadow series that's just you know, that kind of stuff that he can he's so inventive and enjoyable. And I, so I, I love the, the fact too, uh, well, when he gets to write with Kevin and, and it was great to, to get to talk to, to Dayton tonight. We missed Kevin, but Kevin know that um, well, Apparently, I liked your part of the book the best, so just take that one home with you, Kevin. Um,
0: but uh, <laughs> that's right. He was well, there in, in spirit. Of course,
3: we get to do this because we have an incredible uh, group of associate producers here through Patreon. Uh, we've got Ken Tripp, Brandon Shamatullah, Bruce Gibson, and Norman Lau. We really want to thank these guys for making this possible. Uh, you know, Trek FM is a huge undertaking, and there's no way that we can do this on our own. And so go to patreon.com slash trek.fm and you can see how you can help all the shows on the network keep coming to each week. We have some great goals that we're trying to reach here as a network. And really, there's just, again, too many shows, too much going on for us to be able to do it all on our own backs. And we really appreciate all you who have already gone and supported us. Go ahead and check that out. Go to patreon.com slash now, Bruce, uh, when you're not uh, on an alien planet uh, squeegeeing up a uh,
0: gastropod trails, where can we find you? Uh, oh, wow. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me on the Star Wars Report, talking Star Wars with Riley Blanton and Mark Herleman. And, uh, of course, you can always find me in the Babel Conference talking Star Trek. So, Dan... When you're not flirting with Amanda because Sarek is in another dimension, where can people find you? Well,
1: Bruce, <laughs> now, don't get any ideas. I'm, I'm a southern gentleman here. Uh, you're from Canada. From <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> oh, well, I guess
4: but it's
3: southern,
1: southern for Canada, you guys. Right? Not even that, really. <laughs> anyway... When I'm not doing that, you can find me online. My website is www.treklit.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. You can find me on youtube.com slash Productions and on Twitter at KurtRatz. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And Matthew, when you're not linking minds with all your friends trying to rescue them from a strange alternate universe, where can we find you? I'm
3: so drained. That was... That was an ordeal. I'm, I'm not going to lie, but uh, I, I'm probably tweeting about it in Rushing02. 02 uh, You can also find me on Instagram, rushing uh, I do the orb here on the network with Chris Jones where we talk about Deep Space Nine, so check that out. And, of course, I'm doing the General Geek Show here on the network where we talk about all things geeky. I, we, there's so many fandoms that we love. As Dayton was talking about all the different fandoms he's enjoyed writing in. That's what we do on the 602 Club, just cover all those things. So check it out. It's a lot of fun. And then I'm on another show with my good friend John Mills called Aggressive Negotiations. Uh, of course, you can find that on nerdparty.com or also on iTunes. And that is all about Star Wars. John and I pick a fun topic each week, and we just sit back and talk about it. It's a lot of—I just—it's a blast. Just don't miss it. So that's Aggressive Negotiations. Look us up on iTunes. And while you're there on iTunes, i uh, you know, make sure you hit us up, the Literary Tracks, with a star rating review. Then we will really help us out, and we'd really appreciate it. And of course, if you do, we will mention you on the show. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.